0: Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. China is radically changing the way it regulates data environments. As the online news site TechNode put it recently, China is moving from one of the world's least regulated data environments to one of its most. On June 10th, the country's top legislator passed a new data security law that affects a broad swath of industries, defines data categories like important and core state data, and regulates how the state can request this data from companies. Simultaneously, a personal information protection law is being drafted and has just finished the second round of public comments in late May. It would be the first comprehensive law dealing with data privacy and a counterpart to the EU's general data protection regulation. It is assumed that the law will be passed before the end of the year. To talk about the effect and implications of these laws, as well as two recent publications on the evolving data governance regime in China, I'm joined by Rebecca Assasati and John Lee, analyst and senior analyst at Merix, respectively. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca.
1: Thanks, Johannes. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks very much, Johannes. Glad to be here. Let us start with the data security law. Um, John, could you shed a light on the intentions of the Chinese government?
2: The data security law is not primarily concerned with controlling China's big tech companies, which is the spin that has sometimes been put on it, um, given other recent events such as those concerning Jack Ma and Alibaba. There are in fact many other mechanisms to achieve this. For example, the use of party committees within companies, the corporate social credit system and the digital monitoring that gives to Chinese authorities and other regulatory sticks and carrots. Instead, the Data security law, or DSL, is a plank in building a comprehensive data governance framework in China, which addresses a range of relevant issues. So for example, the creation of a nationwide data classification system, addressing different aspects of data security, including individual privacy, the creation and regulation of data markets to support China's economic development, and of course, cross-border data transfers. There are many other important documents in this framework, for example, the Personal Information Protection Law, which will be finalized later this year, relevant standards for personal information and important data under development, and sector-specific regulations for data management. So, For example, Chinese authorities recently published draft provisions on data security in automobiles, which suggests that they are moving towards a sector-specific approach, which will impose more regulations and restrictions on the transfer of certain types of sensitive data.
0: If we talk about the impact on companies and on these different sectors, um, what implications does this law have for foreign companies in, in China? Will they have to store like, all the data they have in China? What, what will the impact be for them? foreign
2: companies will be subject to basically the same regulations as Chinese companies. The main issue from their viewpoint is, as you alluded to, cross-border data transfer. And there the DSL confirms the existing cybersecurity laws provision for important data collected and generated by operators of critical information infrastructure in operations in China to be stored in China and only transferred abroad subject to a security assessment. But the DSO does clarify which Chinese authorities will regulate this process, namely the Cyberspace Administration of China and the relevant Department of the State Council, which does bring a bit more clarity to a long-standing vagueness to this requirement, um, which will hopefully um, assist foreign companies in that respect. Foreign companies might also want to note the creation of a new category of national core data for which the penalties for non-compliance with under data regulation will be significantly more severe. Um, for example, potential fines ranging from 2 to 10 million RMB and other regulatory measures such as um, the prospect of suspension of licences, cessation of business activities, etc.,
0: I could see that there is a lot of insecurity about this category, for example, of core state data. Is there any clear definition of that in the law, or is it a vague term?
2: No, it's not defined in the DSL, but um, that goes for many of the critical terms in this emerging data governance regime. So, for example, what is personal information and what is um, important data or even a critical information? Infrastructure operator are also not precisely defined yet, though there are efforts underway, not necessarily in legislation, but for example, um, in technical standardization committees in China to further articulate these terms. But as I mentioned before, a lot of the regulation is sector specific. I gave the example of the automobile data regulation still in draft form. Um, These sorts of documents are where the critical terms as they apply in the specific context are likely to be found. So um, there won't be a one-fits-all answer, most likely, um, to these uh, top-level definitional issues. Um, it might be worth saying in closing, though, that the Chinese state likes to reserve to itself a degree of flexibility, particularly on the national security side, in how um, it is allowed or the space that it leaves
0: itself to define these terms, again, um, in particular situations. So how should foreign companies deal with these implications of the law?
2: Well, they are likely to do what they are already doing in many contexts of business in China, which is to increasingly localize their operations there to comply with Chinese law. So, for example, a couple of weeks after the automobile data provisions were released, In draft form, um, Tesla announced that all data generated by their vehicles sold in China will be stored locally. Um, What this means in practice is that you are likely to see data regulation driving an existing trend towards sector-specific technical bifurcation um, in China in the operations of foreign firms. So again, to use the auto sector as an example, it would seem that many of the large multinationals are effectively building two technological ecosystems for future self-driving technology. One for the Chinese market and for um, countries which will be more aligned with Chinese standards or perhaps subject to Chinese influence, um, and one for the U.S. technological sphere of influence, if you like. The data security law, like several other recent Chinese laws, provides for firstly extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation to its content. So it applies to foreign entities outside China as well as within it, and also for retaliation against measures by foreign governments, which are perceived to discriminate against Chinese interests. What this means in practice is that if a foreign firm complies with, let's say, an export control regulation um, issued by the United States government or by the EU, um, which targets Chinese firms, Chinese authorities now have a legal basis um, in this and in other Chinese laws um, for imposing penalties on European firms operating in China. And obviously, this is a matter of great concern for European business. Um, After the adoption recently of China's counter-sanctions law, for example, um, the European Chamber of Commerce in China um, made a statement of concern about this. And it definitely needs to be borne in mind by foreign entities operating in China going forwards.
0: Recently, a cybersecurity investigation was opened by Chinese authorities into the ride-hailing company Didi, following its listing on the New York Stock Exchange. This was followed by investigations into other Chinese internet platform companies and changes to China's draft cybersecurity review measures concerning foreign stock market listings and data-related risks. Could you explain to us the context of these events? Didi is the so-called Uber
2: of China. It is a near-monopolistic ride-hailing platform and as such, it holds the uh, data concerning the personal movements of a very large number of Chinese people. Like many Chinese tech firms, it listed on the New York Stock Exchange um, to raise capital, um, apparently despite warnings by Chinese authorities that they had concerns over the disclosure requirements imposed by U.S. law for such listings and the national security risks this might create in the context of Didi's data holdings. The listing was followed a few days later by the announcement of an investigation uh, cybersecurity review process into DD. Um, and this was in turn followed up rapidly by similar announcements regarding another two Chinese internet platform companies that likewise um, have business models involving the collection of large amounts of personal data. Um, then a few days after that, the draft cybersecurity review measures in China were amended to specifically address foreign stock market listings and the risk of data leakage and transfer of sensitive categories of data
0: abroad. Could you explain for us what the main concerns of the Chinese authorities are here and what are the key changes to the cybersecurity review measures?
2: Clearly, the Chinese authorities are now prioritizing data security over the commercial needs of Chinese firms. And this is in line, of course, with a trend which has been noticeable for some time. Everyone remembers the disappearance of Jack Ma um, temporarily last year and the regulatory discipline imposed against Ant Financial. Um, This is part of the same trend of bringing the big Chinese internet platform firms into line with Chinese law and national security priorities. As mentioned, um, the key concern here is the potential for sensitive data to find its way to U.S. authorities. And for comparison, uh, the use by Chinese state and military employees of Tesla vehicles in China has also been restricted for the same concerns that the uh, information around their around the movement of individuals um, might become available to US authorities and therefore harm Chinese national security. The changes to the cybersecurity review measures basically um, mandate such a review in the case of new listings on foreign markets by Chinese companies holding the personal information of more than 1 million users. And obviously, this is intended to capture big internet platform firms like DD, which hold... Uh, data relating to the personal circumstances of large numbers of Chinese citizens. In addition, um, the list of factors that need to be considered during such a cybersecurity review have been expanded to include the risk that core data, important data, or large amounts of personal information are stolen, leaked, damaged, or illegally used or exported, as well as the risk that after listing on a foreign stock exchange, um, critical information infrastructure, core data, important data, or large amounts of personal information are maliciously used by foreign governments. This is in line with the increased focus on data security by the Chinese authorities and the need to ensure that um, the national development and economic benefits of the expansion by the big internet companies like Didi um, is balanced with the perceived requirements of national
0: security. I'd like to move to the personal information protection law next Uh, Rebecca, how will the proposed law impact Chinese citizens?
1: So um, the personal information protection law will be China's first comprehensive legislation governing the handling of personal data. Uh, it's a law whose uh, drafters took strong inspiration from the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, which you've already mentioned, with far-reaching implications for the way companies and, to some degree, also government bureaucracies collect, store, use, and transfer Chinese citizens' information. Uh, the law essentially unifies what was previously a piecemeal data privacy regime in China, It aims to provide individuals with stronger protections against abuse, um, insecure handling, and commercial exploitation of their personal information. Uh, Much like in the GDPR, um, informed consent is basically the core underlying principle. So the idea is that uh, citizens should have greater control over who does what with their information. Um, Chinese regulators are especially targeting Chinese big online platforms, uh, which have amassed enormous amounts of personal data and often abused their position as dominant service providers in ways that violate users' privacy. This has led to mounting public pressure in recent years. We've seen important changes with the second draft of the law issued in April, For example, uh, more stringent obligations for some online platforms with a large user base to regulate themselves by establishing semi-independent oversight bodies. The law should be read alongside other regulatory developments, including um, administrative measures, standards, and regulations, which clarify how personal data should be handled in specific situations and sectors. One example is a provisional regulation issued by the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology back in April to regulate the use of personal data by mobile apps, which emphasizes informed consent and data minimization. The ministry also said it had ordered app stores to take down over 100 apps that abused user data.
0: If I may ask a follow-up question do you think it is overall a positive development for Chinese citizens then?
1: I think the law is definitely a positive development, yes. Um, it comes amid a broader overhaul of China's data protection regime. Uh, we saw, for example, the civil code uh, enacted last year, um, including stronger provisions for uh, privacy. And we've seen a number of other measures and standards being enacted that aim to basically um, protect citizens against abuses by private companies, as well as government bureaucracies. Um, so this is a response to what were mounting public concerns about exaggerated or excessive data collection by, uh, by companies and government authorities um, so the, the government is really uh, taking this uh, privacy issue quite seriously, and it is also positioning China uh, to some extent as a leading regulator when it comes to data protection legislation um, in the international landscape. Of course, everything will depend on implementation, so we will have to see how much Um, this law will actually allow Chinese citizens to uh, enforce their privacy rights um, against not just companies, but also uh, the state.
0: You just touched on the international landscape. To what extent is China's data protection different from that in European countries, for example?
1: Well, one important difference I, I would highlight is that China's data protection regime is primarily geared towards reining in abuses of Chinese people's data by private companies, especially large internet companies. It therefore aims to leave state authorities with very broad powers to collect, use, and integrate such data. Uh, The Chinese government, like many governments around the world, aims to uh, collect and integrate data to perform public security, law enforcement, public service provision, um, and governance functions. However, the power balance between the state and citizens is obviously profoundly different in China compared to uh, European liberal democracies. The Chinese Communist Party views data as a powerful tool for strengthening its social surveillance and monitoring capabilities. The end goal is state security, which in turn requires social stability be maintained at all costs. Under uh, President Xi Jinping, the CCP has greatly accelerated its efforts to build a powerful surveillance state. To be sure, uh, the Personal Information Protection Law does impose a number of constraints on the handling of personal information by state organs. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Chinese citizens expressed grave concerns about the extent of surveillance technology in public spaces and the excessive collection of personal data, for example, through CCTV cameras equipped with facial recognition, which nowadays uh, basically uh, you can find everywhere uh, on the street and in public spaces across China. With this law, the government is basically responding to these public concerns. However, individuals' consent to the collection of their data is not required when it's considered necessary for state organs to respond to public emergencies, for example, a pandemic, but also to perform tasks related to the protection of public security and the public interest. So while the draft law allows citizens to file complaints and seek redress if um, administrative organs violate their privacy rights, the party's leadership over the legal and judicial systems and broad national security priorities make it unlikely, I think, uh, that Chinese citizens will be able to enforce their privacy rights against the state um, anytime soon.
0: is Merrick's experts. John and Rebecca, your analytical work at Merrick's focuses on different aspects of digitalization in China. Both of you have just published studies on the country's evolving data governance, one on AI ethics and governance, and one on the Internet of Things. Let us briefly touch upon the topics you have looked into. Rebecca, your China Monitor is called Lofty Principles, Conflicting Incentives, an analysis of AI ethics and governance in China. Given the dynamics of AI technology's development in China, one might assume that ethical considerations do not play a big role. But is that correct? What is China's approach to AI ethics?
1: I think that's definitely the dominant assumption about the development of AI technologies and products in China. At least it's an assumption I've heard a lot of people making um, here in Europe, that in China, you know, there, there's no debate about areas of ethical concern and potential harm caused by AI systems. And there also seems to be an assumption that ethical considerations do not play a role in China's AI industry. And that's why I think it's important to take a closer look at debates and developments that are unfolding in China, because actually, uh, Chinese regulatory industry, academic, and also um, civil society discussions about AI and the impact of autonomous systems on society do reveal a wide range of perspectives, um, concerns, and approaches, which I think we don't always appreciate Uh, The dominant narrative seems to imply that China is a monolith when it comes to emerging technology development and governance, when in fact things are a bit more uh, complex. Uh, If you look at civil society, for example, there's growing awareness uh, debate and occasionally also pushback related to the risks of AI. And in some cases, this has even led to policy changes and corporate uh, self-regulation. Uh, For example, we've seen public pushback against the rollout of facial recognition systems in public spaces, which has played a big role in the development of the data privacy regulations that we talked about earlier. Uh, But it's not just the public that pays attention to AI ethics. Um, Major tech companies like Tencent uh, or Baidu, for example, have issued principles to try and regulate themselves in addition to conducting extensive research into AI governance and ethics issues. For example, uh, research on privacy-preserving methods uh, in machine learning or how to guarantee algorithmic security in autonomous uh, vehicles. Over the past uh, four years, we've also seen the Chinese government launching consultations with academia and industry, which resulted in a number of guiding principles, such as the Beijing AI principles from May 2019. And China is also working on a set of standards and risk assessment frameworks to tackle ethical and safety risks. That being said, uh, China's approach to AI governance is shaped, of course, by its political system. While the Chinese government pays attention to the social risks AI could bring, it also views AI technologies as tools that could massively enhance its surveillance capabilities and ward off um, against any threats, real or perceived, um, to its authoritarian role. And so... You know, official documents speak about the need to prevent algorithmic bias. But then you also see the state weaponizing AI against ethnic minorities in Xinjiang, which the CCP views as a threat uh, to society. And what I try to explain in the report is that both things can be true at the same time.
0: How could foreign actors in this space cooperate with Chinese counterparts, if at all?
1: So the the politics of AI in China make cooperation extremely challenging for European actors, particularly when it comes to engagement with the Chinese government. The Chinese government views AI technologies, uh, as I said, as tools to maintain social stability and protect state security. By contrast, the European Union is trying to lead global regulation um, of AI towards a human-centric approach that protects fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, It's no coincidence that the EU's proposed AI uh, regulation takes a strong stance against high-risk applications like AI-powered assessment of people's trustworthiness. And to a large extent, I think that comes from fear um, and to some extent misconceptions as well of China's social credit experiments. Cooperation uh, at the level of industry is also complicated by the fact that China's Official approach to AI governance creates conflicting incentives for uh, its AI industry and AI researchers. Uh, take a company like MugV, who has, uh, you know, spearheaded corporate self-regulation on AI um, and pledges to promote ethical AI, while at the same time developing Uyghur alarms because those are the products that the state wants from these companies. And I think it's important to recognize that the problem of conflicting incentives um, is, is not at all unique to China, but what's unique is the symbiotic relationship between the state and AI companies. Uh, so as these companies expand globally and, and play a bigger role in international standard setting bodies as well... Uh, there are acute risks that the mainstream moral and ethical frameworks pushed by the Chinese government may influence the design and development of AI systems that are then used all around the world. And I think European AI companies and researchers should also really be asking themselves whether engaging in joint AI research and development with Chinese firms that basically cash on the repression of ethnic minority populations is in line with their principles. At the same time, and I try to explain this in the report, surveillance is not the only application of AI systems, as these systems are and will be increasingly present in our societies, from autonomous vehicles to health-related AI. Risks ranging from physical safety hazards to discrimination of specific social groups require joint solutions and not conversations about an AI arms race. Um, Chinese researchers are already actively looking to EU guidelines and principles for inspiration when it comes to tackling ethical risks in specific application scenarios. And we also see Chinese scholars and companies coming up with highly innovative solutions in the context of, um, for example, applied ethics and governance technologies. Uh, So in order to establish cooperation, I think European actors should first of all be receptive and also willing to learn from their Chinese counterparts.
0: How likely then do you see the development of a global baseline of AI regulation?
1: So um, this is a great question. And actually, I do think that uh, greater international convergence on um, AI governance and AI regulations is really, really important. uh, Also to ensure interoperability, um, at the same time, I think it will be very difficult to bring China to the table uh, in any of these uh, discussions. Um, China, for example, did uh, endorse the G20 principles on AI, which were modeled after the OECD's principles and there's language in there about uh you know human rights for example um and the EU has already expressed criticism of China because of the fact that the way the Chinese government uses AI tools and platforms uh, is um contrary to what China basically endorsed in the G20 principles but these principles are of course non-binding um and so it's, it's really challenging to actually translate them into concrete um actions by by governments worldwide i think what we will see is greater uh, coordination among liberal democracies to work on uh, common ai standards um Enormous. And I think this is really the way to go, um, where we're already seeing a lot of movement, for example, within the OECD, uh, but uh, it will probably be uh, impossible to incorporate China, integrate China into those efforts. Where I think there can be cooperation is at the level of, of standard setting bodies, where uh, Chinese companies are already um, actively participating, and in some cases, uh, you know, um, offering solutions, uh, especially on governance technologies that are quite interesting and I think could um, pave the way for, for cooperation. But cooperation will have to be ultimately uh, focused on the technical level. Um, it will be really difficult, however, to, to cooperate with the Chinese government in this respect.
0: The number and type of objects or things connected to the Internet and which can be influenced through it, is expanding massively. These objects increasingly interact with each other, and with humans, often without human mediation. The result is a growing number of real-world functions being controlled through cyberspace. The so-called Internet of Things has, thus, very real consequences for our everyday lives. John, you recently wrote a China Monitor called The Connection of Everything, China and the Internet of Things. Could you tell us what role China plays in shaping the Internet of Things? Happy to, Johannes.
2: And let me start by recommending that the listener reads my report, or at least the executive summary. But basically, because of China's place in the world's manufacturing industry for electronics, and the sustained priority the Chinese government has placed on developing the Internet of Things within China, Chinese firms are now major players in evolving Internet of Things systems, both in the industrial IoT and in consumer IoT ecosystems. And of course, the role of Chinese firms in emerging application systems built on the IoT. So for example, smart manufacturing, intelligent and connected vehicles means that they will be key actors in shaping the IoT at a global level going forwards. Now, the IoT creates great opportunities for future technological applications and for generating wealth. I gave just then the example of improved manufacturing and of self-driving cars. But of course, it also amplifies the security issues that have always been inherent in the Internet, a technology that was designed for the free flow of information, because originally it emerged within a trusted context, within the boundaries of the US government. Now, of course, it is a globe-spanning system that connects in the most intimate way different countries that are politically antagonistic. And everyone will be familiar with the debate around um, the security issues around Chinese firms and Chinese technology and whether um, we should, meaning in Western countries, decouple from Chinese digital technology, meaning the internet in the largest sense. And obviously, the rising role of Chinese firms and actors in the global IoT simply raises these issues to a new scale. You mentioned before the fact that the IoT will increasingly embed the Internet and hence um, the ability of actors who shape and manipulate Internet infrastructure In the real world, Um, this, of course, creates a whole new set of security issues. We give the example in the report of the cyber attacks um, that flowed on from Ukraine several years ago um, to affect, for example, um, the global shipping operator Maersk which saw as a consequence of these um, a drop in its real-world um, cargo handling volumes of around 20%, albeit briefly. That's just a taste of the sorts of impacts in the physical world we may see from the increasing development of the IoT going forwards. And the security concerns around China um, will only become more acute in this context.
0: So how should European actors adapt their diplomacy in in light of China's rise in IoT? So in this context,
2: two of the key messages from the report are that firstly, the world is not likely to split cleanly into a US-centric and a China-centric digital sphere of influence. The reasons for this are complex, but the implications are that Chinese digital technology is likely to be present in some form or other through large parts of the world, especially in the developing world, which is the main source of growth, not just for the global economy in general, but specifically for the Internet-based economy. Just to give one example, um, by one estimate, the digital, or at least the e-commerce economy of Southeast Asia is likely to reach around 300 billion US dollars in value by 2025, and Chinese actors are prominent in this picture. The developing world is also playing an increasingly large role in shaping the evolving Internet of Things, not just as markets, but also as shapers of the technologies and systems themselves. So in the report, I use the example of the collaborative global software development platform, GitHub. Now, by that platform's own projections, the share of its users from the developing world um, will increase significantly over the coming decade, whereas the share of users from the United States will fall by almost the same percentage over the same time frame. This is, of course, not so simple a picture because many of those software developers working in emerging markets like India, um, like South Africa and so on, um, even in China, uh, though to a lesser extent increasingly, um, work for US multinationals um, and European multinationals. However, it does put in perspective the increasing role in shaping the design and application of technologies um, that constitute and are built on the evolving Internet of Things, um, played by the developing world. Um, Whereas in the past, these systems have been dominated in their creation and their operation by Western actors. Now, if we look at European diplomacy and... Long-term policy, the Digital Compass, which aims to position Europe in the future digital economy over the decade to 2030, talks about the importance of Africa as a region. And indeed, um, the Digital for Development Hub, which is uh, one EU initiative for targeting the developing world's digital sectors, talks about um, Africa as the first priority and about developing a values-based rulebook for the evolution of the future internet-based economy when it comes to things, for example, such as the use of surveillance technologies. Yet Africa is a continent where, by one controversial estimate, um, Huawei has already equipped 70% of the telecommunications networks and is being picked by countries for their next-generation telecoms infrastructure rollouts. So for example, Kenya and South Africa have both selected Huawei for their 5G infrastructure builds. And there does not seem to have been any traction gained by the pressure that the US government, for example, has been placing on countries around the world to avoid Huawei for precisely such contracts over the last few years. In the context of European diplomacy, um, how to reconcile um, this divergence of views between concerns on the European side about um, the use of future digital technologies for certain purposes, such as authoritarian political repression and surveillance and um, the Clear appetite of countries around the developing world for Chinese digital technologies is uh, a challenge that European digital diplomacy will need to adapt to going forwards. And there will need to be compromises made in the interests of keeping Europe connected as part of a larger global economy integrated to the Internet of Things in which Chinese actors are significant players. One example of how some common ground might be found in terms of protecting European interests in the context of an increasingly diverse um, and challenging international environment um, for Internet governance um, is the public core of the Internet concept, which um, I reference in the report. Um, This put into practice would mean basically self-restraint by national governments in their interference with the internet and its design to ensure that such basic elements as the domain name system and networking protocols remain functional and interoperable across borders in order to ensure that the internet can continue delivering its functions um, in the global common interest
0: how likely do you see a chinese cooperation in this um, endeavor well, that, I think, depends to a large extent
2: on the direction that the European unions and, of course, the United States' policies on these issues takes going forwards, um, and also of other important players such as India. But suffice it to say that... Um, And, uh, of course, there is a larger context here in which the political environment in China is becoming increasingly ideological and the freedom of maneuver for more practical-minded actors is shrinking. But um, suffice it to say that Chinese diplomacy in Internet governance and international cyberspace regulation has shown flexibility in the past. So, for example, the Chinese authorities um, have more or less reconciled themselves to the concept of the multi-stakeholder model of internet governance, um, which encompasses a role for civil society and other non-state actors in basically shaping the rules around international cyberspace governance and technical standardization. Now, some would argue that um, the Chinese government's interpretation um, of what that means and the influence that it exerts over non-state actors in China, such as the big technology companies, um, the Chinese delegations to the international technical standardization bodies, um, undermines that flexibility. But I think that um, it's Simply too important an issue to adopt a completely adversarial stance towards China in this area. Uh, The Internet by nature is a connected system and everyone will suffer if agreement cannot be reached on at least some basic issues around international connectivity and the functioning of global digital infrastructure.
0: John and Rebecca, thank you very much for your time and your insights. Thanks very much, Johannes.
1: Thank you, Johannes.
0: You can find our recent China monitors and China's evolving data governance regime on our website. My name is Johannes heller As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merics.org.